Erev Tov, everybody. Welcome to our Thursday night Parashat Shavua class. Tonight is a special night. It is the Thursday night before Shabbat Shuva. Normally, we will be meeting in synagogue on Shabbat afternoon to speak about Teshuvah, as was the custom for hundreds and hundreds of years throughout the generations. However, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted it differently this year. And uh, given the circumstances, we are yet again confined to our rooms in our offices or our kitchens or wherever you may be right now, listening to it live or on a recording. And we are here on video conference to speak about Teshuvah, not to forego and let go of the minhag. It's an important minhag. And I wanted to use this opportunity to, instead of speaking about the parasha, which we will do Bezrat Hashem this Shabbat, but speak about the concept of Teshuvah and hopefully get us in the proper mindset for Yom Kippur, which is coming very, very shortly this coming Sunday night. Of course, we have to speak about Teshuvah. Teshuvah, repentance. Repentance is the spiritual phenomenon which according to our teachings must be expressed verbally as the vidui. The vidui is translated as confession. The Rambam in his Mishneh Torah, one of the few individuals to even speak about Teshuvah, Hilchot Teshuvah, laws of Teshuvah, tells us that the major part of the confession, the major part of the vidui which we recite throughout the season of Teshuvah and throughout the year, consists of the words, Aval chatanu anachnu va'avotenu. Aval chatanu. But we have sinned, we and our fathers. These words, Aval chatanu, which acknowledge error, acknowledge failure, that's what constitutes the essence of confession, the essence of vidui. Three words, not much. And one should, you know, not go to war with the Rambam in terms of what he, he means by this. Yet the Rambam was a man of, of high standards and was extremely precise with his words. So therefore we must ask, should it not be sufficient to express the intention of the vidui, of this confession, that we just say chatanu? If, if it's going that short anyways, why can't we just say chatanu? That is the word that we need to say. We have sinned. What is with aval chatanu? But we have sinned. As a matter of fact, the tanya, the bala tanya, it maintains that in order to fulfill the requirement of the vidui, of the confession, it's sufficient just to say chatanu. But the Rambam is medayek, and he says it has to be aval chatanu. But we have sinned. The answer I saw written is that the Rambam had very specific intention in including the word aval, but. And we, who incorporate the same words in our introduction to the longer form of the vidui, which we do every morning, we comprehend the same idea, although without really articulating that idea, as I'm going on to explain. The word aval, the word but, is very critical 
Our major sin consists of that one word, aval, but. That's what I'm going to explain tonight. You see, very few people are downright mean, evil. Most human beings are well-intentioned people who rarely sin maliciously. We recognize the truth. We adore, we admire righteousness. We acknowledge that this is the way we ought to live life, the proper way. In fact, prior to saying the words aval chatanu anachnu vavotenu, we say tzadikim anachnu. We are righteous, inherently righteous. However, we rationalize and find all types of alibis and excuses for our misbehavior. We look all over the place to justify the departure from ways of decency and virtue. We know the truth, but we don't follow it. We don't follow it because aval, because of but. The word aval or but represents the exception we take to the life that is good and right and decent by justifying, rationalizing, and apologizing for ourselves. Aval is the loophole in the law of decency. And through that loophole, the man can allow himself to do everything that is indecent, things that are forbidden, cruel, degrading. And yet the worst part of it is that the psychology of the word aval allows us to remain even after committing the sin with a state of self-satisfaction, self-righteousness. Aval is a, a word that permits us to maintain this fake idea of innocence and purity. I would like to give you some examples. Do we not recognize in our own lives this aval? We feel we know we have to maintain closer relationships with our family, that we build our own families, that we shouldn't neglect our parents or our siblings or our cousins. We know it. Aval, but we're too busy. But we live too far away. But a phone call takes too much of my day. I'll just send a text message, if that. We as regular synagogue attendees every Shabbat know that we shouldn't read neglecting the daily minyan. No Orthodox synagogue should know what it feels like that they can't have 10 men to say Kaddish or the Kedushah. Everyone knows that Praying and worshipping HaKadosh Baruch Hu in public is a much warmer, meaningful experience than praying at home. Aval! But I go to sleep too late. I can't wake up. But I must be at the office on time. I can't go to synagogue. But I have to take my children to school. And uh, the other minyan that's earlier, that's too far for me. I can't attend that one. Talking in synagogue. We know it's wrong. How many times have we heard it from the rabbis over and over? How many videos have you received over the last five years about the severity of talking in synagogue? We know it's wrong. But he came and asked me a question. I just answered. But he's the one that walked over to me. I didn't go around. But 
We were talking about Torah stuff. We were talking about halacha. It's okay, right? Aval. We know we need to expand our intellectual horizons. We have to attend shiurim, study Torah, learn Judaism in a more uh, mature manner. Because we can't survive our whole life based on whatever we learned in elementary school or prior to our bar mitzvah. We understand that. We recognize that Torah is et chayim hila machazikim ba. It's the essence of life. And we would do it. But I've been out of school so long. My mind is not used to such learning like that. I no longer have patience for study. But I have no time. But the rabbi goes too fast. The rabbi goes too slow. But they schedule the classes at the wrong time. It doesn't work for me. Again, more excuses, more alibis. We know we should be giving our children greater attention, a fuller Jewish education, to let them grow up understanding the morals and the midot and the mitzvot and what to choose and what to reject. We know that's important. Aval, but... There are so many small other things that children require that we need to attend to. But Jewish education is so expensive. But high school is so difficult and there's just so much homework. Why the dual curriculum? Aval, but chatanu, anachnu, vavotenu. How we sin with the word aval, says the Rambam. Shabbat Shuvah. Is an appropriate time to discuss our conduct, of course, on Shabbat. Shabbat and Teshuvah, they're related. It's the same Shoresh. Shin Bet Taf, Shabbat, Teshuvah, it's the same letters. Chachamim tell us that when Adam Arishon learned that his Teshuvah was accepted, he broke into song. And that song was what song? Mizmor Shir Leyoma Shabbat. That was the song composed by Adam Arishon. We are all, most of us, Shabbat observers, some more than others, some more traditionally, some with more uh, strict observance. But each one of us knows that we lack something. And there's more to complete in our Shemitah Shabbat. We know that. And even the minor infractions detract us from Kedushat Shabbat. We know it and we agree to it. Aval, but can't change our old habits. But the best TV shows are on Friday night. Gotta watch the TV. But it's too inconvenient. But Rabbi, it's the Leafs. The Leafs are on. It's the playoffs. I know I have to do more for Eretz Israel or for all other Jews around the world and Jewish organizations. Aval, but there are so many charities competing for my attention and for my money. Or, but the charity begins at home before I give my money away. It's another excuse. Oh, but there's so many other things to do. I believe it was Levi Eshkol, former Prime Minister of Eretz Israel, who once said in a speech, in a play of words on, on Yirmiyahu, which we say, Darche Tzion Avelot. Darche Tzion Avelot. Originally, the words mean the ways of Tzion are mourning. But in his play of words, Levi Eshkol says, the ways of Zion, the ways of Zion are avelot, are full of avals, full of however's, but I can't do excuses. Israel deserves everything, but there's other needs first. Israel is gaining economically, 
but it's going to take time to get out of uh, out of the red. Uh, Jews in, in the diaspora love Israel, but they don't want to leave their homes. Americans want to send their children to Eretz Israel. Yeah, but what about their careers? What about the Parnassah? Darket Sion Avelot. Eretz Israel is all about all about butts. That's what it is. So that our vidui, our confession on this holy day of the year, is primarily aval chatanu anachnu vavotenu. It has to be aval chatanu, but we have sinned. Our major sin, our major crime, our major failure in this small world, this small word, aval. If we were big enough to throw away all these excuses, to abandon all of these rationalizations that we make and to throw away and scrap our insincere apologies to ourselves. We would live a decent life, right thinking, the way Jews, human beings ought to do. If we had the right honesty to abandon all the major sin of aval, then our ethical standards would grow, our moral stature would increase, and our religious dimension would fulfill itself. One of the great Jewish thinkers of the previous generation, Dr. Yitzchak Brower, taught that there are three dimensions. He called them retzonot. He called them wills to the human personality. There is retzon behemi, the animal will, or that aspect of man which is indistinguishable from the animal, from the beast. Hunger for food, for example, the desire for reproduction, the lust for power, aggressiveness. It's our animal instincts that we have inside us. Then there's a second will, which he calls Retzon Sikhli. This is called intellectual will. This represents man's intellectual faculties, how he reasons, how he weighs things in his mind, how he decides. But he says and explains that these are not enough to make of man what he should be. For life to be meaningful, man must possess a third will, a third dimension, which he calls Retzon Chazoni, the visionary, the prophetic, the spiritual will, the religious dimension of our personality. Why aren't the first two sufficient? Because he says, without the spiritual dimension, the intellectual Ratzon, the intellectual will of man, works merely to justify the animal instinct by rationalizing. If there are no spiritual restraints to a person, then a man's mind will tell him that it's quite all right to exploit the poor, or to cheat, or to do illegitimate business, or to destroy a competitor. It's fine. It's business. Nothing personal. It's just business, as the saying goes. If there's no visionary in life, if there's no chazon, future prophetic, spiritual vision, then the animal instinct runs wild in a person. And his powers of reasoning turn into rationalization. And they say one word and one word only, aval, but. This allows man to, to lower himself to the level of a beast. The kind of beast that is way too dangerous. More than what we can think. The animal and the brain alone say aval, but 
It's the prophetic will. It's the Ritzon Chazoni in the man that says, Chatanu, we have sinned. That the aval is an illegitimate excuse. The question is, this is a beautiful idea from the Rambam. But where did the Rambam get this from? Where did Maimonides and the whole Jewish tradition derive this insight into the potential danger of this word aval? So that we're saying now formulates almost the entire vidui, aval chatanu. We've sinned with the word aval. Where does it come from? It derives from two places. Main, I believe two places, but mainly one is brought down. The main one that it's brought down, it comes from the story of Yosef and his brothers. You recall that the brothers had wronged Yosef. They sold him into slavery. Many years later, when they came before Yosef, who was now the viceroy of Egypt, to beg for food, the brothers didn't recognize Yosef. Vehem lohikiru, the pasuk says. And when this viceroy demanded of them that they leave one brother as hostage, they suddenly began to think of their own crime, their ancient sin that they committed against Yosef so many years back. And they looked at another and exclaimed the words that the Torah says, Aval Ashemim Anachnu. That's what they said to one another. But we are guilty. And indeed, they used the word aval. Our guilt is one of aval. One can imagine what went through their minds at the time that they sold Yosef. We know we're committing a terrible crime. But, at least we're not killing him. We're not murdering him. We know that we're tearing him away from our family but maybe he'll be better off in a new setting, away from jealous brothers. We know we're going to be breaking our father's heart by selling him. But Aval, he has 11 other sons to console him, so it's not so bad. We knew that Yosef's ambitions and dreams were the result of his childish imagination. But Aval were too busy to entertain such pranks. Aval Ashemim Anachnu. We are guilty of the Aval. How interesting that if you look at Rashi on that Pasuk, commenting on the word Aval in this expression, Rashi quotes the Midrash, which is also puzzled by this word Aval. Aval is a very modern day term to mean uh, but. In, 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 in the Torah language, the Gemara, it could be Ela, it could be Ki, Aval is very strange to find in the Torah. So, Rashi quotes the Midrash, he says, you know where this word Aval comes from? He says, Lishna de Roma'ahu. The word Aval is the language of the Romans. I don't think the Midrash meant to say that the Hebrew word Aval is linguistically related to some Latin word. But what the Midrash had in mind is a moral teaching. That the use of the idea of Aval, the self-righteous justification of all wrongdoing, that is the language of the Romans. The, the language of Esav. 
That's a technique. That's a philosophy of those who are anti-Jewish, anti-Torah. The world, the word aval symbolizes Rome. It symbolizes aggressiveness, lust for power, its desire for exploitation and conquest. That's what aval is. Aval is the language of those who commit injustice, even while they outwardly affirm justice and righteousness. Tadikim anachnu, aval chatanu, taval. That's not the language of Israel. The word aval has no rightful place in the vocabulary of Judaism. Aval lishna deromaahu. The word bat is a moral loophole, has no business in the language of the Jewish life. It's a lishna deromaah, not a lishna de Yehuda, not a lishna de Israel. So I went and I started researching. Where else in the Torah does it say the word aval? And I could only find one other time. I could be wrong, but I only found one other time. And it happens way back in Parashat, in, in Sefer Bereshit, in Parashat Lech Lecha, where Akadosh Baruch Hu tells mm-hmm. Abraham Avinu that he is going to have a son. He's going to have a child. Abraham Avinu is now 100 years old or 99 years old. Sarah is also advanced in her age. What does Abraham do when hearing the news? Abraham Avinu falls on his face. He starts cracking up. Because was a joke. Me? I'm going to have a child? I know you mean well, God, but come on. I'm a, I'm a hundred years old. This ain't happening. Could it be that I'm going to have a child at a hundred? And Sarah is going to have a child at ninety? Is that something that's possible? What does the Pasuk say? Said two psukim later. Vayomer Elokim. And God said, Aval Sarah Ishtecha Yoledet Lecha Ben. But Sarah, your wife, will give birth to a son. The word Aval is misplaced. It should, if, if, if Akados Baruch Hu is trying to tell Abraham he's incorrect, he should have told him, Lo. But rather, yes, your son, your, your wife is going to have a child. What's Aval? Aval, I always had this question. What's Aval doing in this Pasuk? Aval, but your wife, your, your wife is going to have a child. What Akados Baruch Hu is telling Abraham based on what we're saying. Abraham, why are you giving yourself excuses? I'm telling you to do something. I'm telling you something's going to happen. Why are you rationalizing it? Why are you justifying something that you believe to be true when I'm telling you it's not? You are sinning with the with the word aval. You're giving yourself excuses. This is the problem. This is our problem. Aval chatanu anachnu vabotenu. That's what we have to have in mind when we say this. When we confess, we don't say it enough. We don't. We we find excuses for our actions. We find reasons to believe that they're fine. Everything is good. It's okay. It's okay. If, even if I sin, it's it's all right. But I meant for I, I meant it's okay. But I, but Lashonara, you know it's wrong. Why are you speaking Lashonara? But it's the truth. I, I'm not. I'm not lying. It's the truth. It's for their benefit. I'm saying, right? How many times you heard this? I'm saying it for their benefit. Otherwise, I wouldn't say it. Aval chatanu anachnu vavotenu. I read a very powerful, powerful story in one of the Magid books, the Magid series by Rav Pesach Kron, who spoke brilliantly last night 
for those who are able to hear. The story took place decades ago in a very, very uh, famous yeshiva. It took place around Purim, on Purim. I want to preface the story by saying in the world of the yeshivot, Purim was a very, as you can imagine, a very joyous, happy time. It was filled with a lot of jokes and even filled with pranks. And it was accepted. It was something that the students did to the to the Rebbeim, the Rabbanim. Sometimes the Rabbanim did it back to the students. It was all great fun and games. It was wonderful. Even in the olden days, the students would go and ask for mechila from the rabbi the next day, just in case like they really like may have hurt their feelings. That, that doesn't happen so much anymore. But the following play, story took place in a world-famous yeshiva. And the Rosh Yeshiva, the head rabbi, was a very good-natured man who was very revered, well-respected, beloved by his Talmidim. And he would, every Purim, again, he would joke with them over and over again. What was the prank that the students would do with him? Every year following the reading of the Megillah, they would enter his private office, remove the tefillin from his pouch, and change the knot of the tefillin, shaliyad, on the arm tefillin, from Ashkenaz to Sefarad. Now, it's really just a switch of position. The Ashkenazim, they wrap their tefillin wrapping towards the body, like this. And Sfaradim wrap away from the body. So it's just a posi- where the position is, the knot will, will determine how you are wrapping the straps, either away from your body or first. So th- this rabbi was Ashkenaz, and he wrapped towards. The people would undo the knot, the students would undo the knot, put it on the other side, so that he would wrap it the other way. Now the next morning, the rabbi knew how to fasten and unfasten different knots in the tefillin. And again, he took this with a grain of salt. And he would untie the knot, tie it back the proper way, and come back into the Bet Midrash, smiling, laughing, uh, accepting the joke. Uh, one year, the Rosh Hashiva had his tefillin in an office cabinet. Because I was trying a little harder to hide it away from the students. And, uh, but that didn't phase the Bachurim. And somehow they were able to open the cabinet. And once again, they changed the knot of the tefillin. The next Purim, the, the, the Rosh Hashiva's assistant told him, listen, Rabbi, why don't you just take the tefillin home? You know they're going to do something. He said, no, 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 I have a good plan. I have a plan. I'm going to use a combination lock. So he put his tefillin in the cabinet, combination lock. Now the Bachurim, the students are not going to get to the tefillin. In order to remember the combination for the lock, he wrote it in light pencil on the side, the, the combination, in a place that no one could see. But the students, they went into the office, they searched everywhere, they found the combination on the wall, they took out the tefillin, and again, one more time, they switched the knot, but that's fine. The next morning he woke up, he untied it, put it back the way it was, and again, walked into the bed, midrash with a big smile on his face. Year number four, it was different. This time, a new... Bahur, a new student, joined the regulars in this prank. And this time when he changed the knot, he tied the knot so tightly that the next morning the Rosh Yeshiva had a lot of difficulty to undo it. And he was trying and he was trying and he couldn't do it. He started sweating. He struggled to open the knot. And he couldn't manage it. And precious moments were slipping by because tefillah had already started. By the time the, 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 the yeshiva reached Shema Yisrael, 
the Rosh Hashiva still hadn't come in to the Bet Midrash because he was still occupied in his office trying to untie the knot. And a few minutes later, he came to the realization that he had mi- the realization that he had missed Tefillah Besibur, praying Amida with the Minyan, and he was devastated. And now, this was no longer a joking matter. And for the rest of the Purim, he was deeply downcast because of what happened. Now, he didn't rebuke or reprimand every, anyone on Purim, but that Friday night, he gave a schmooze, he gave a speech to the entire yeshiva. And he said, Rabotai, that what occurred on Purim, which caused me to miss out tefillah, was terrible. I cannot and will not forgive the Bachur who tied the knot so tight that I couldn't open it. And I missed tefillah b'tzibur. He didn't even reveal to them that he had to eventually cut the retzuot. He had to cut the straps. You can imagine the personal anguish he was going through. And he went on to say in that speech that he couldn't remember the last time that he missed tefillah b'tzibur playing with a minyan. And he said, the bachur must come to me and ask for mechila. But no one moved. No one stirred. For days afterwards, the Rosh Hashiva waited for someone to come to his office to admit to the incident, but nobody did. No one even mentioned that prank. Months later, on Shabbat Shuva, the Shabbat between Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, this, like this coming Shabbat, he delivered another speech to the whole Bet Midrash. And when he cited the Rambam in Ichot Teshuvah, that says that Yom Kippur only atones for the sins that a person committed between him and Hashem, but not for the sins that a person has committed against one another. And he said, Yom Kippur cannot and does not atone for that type of sin until he comes and asks for forgiveness. And therefore I say again publicly that the Bachur responsible for making the knot on my tefillin so tight this past Purim, which is already over six months later, causing me to miss tefillah b'sibur, he must come to me and ask for forgiveness, otherwise I cannot pardon him. Nobody came. A few weeks later, after Yom Kippur, the Rosh Hashiva, who, has been, who was sick, passed away. But the next Ziman, the next semester, the young man who had changed the knot in the previous years, but not the last year, he moved to a different yeshiva. And several months passed by uneventfully. And all of a sudden, a few days before Purim, something unusual happened while he was praying. A man who had, he had never seen before approached him and asked him to do him a favor. He said, how can I help you? He says, listen, the knot of my tefillin shelyad opened up. I don't know how to tie it. By any chance, you know how to tie it? So the young Bahu says, as a matter of fact, yeah, I know how to tie it. He quickly fastened it. And the man said, Chazak Baruch, thank you for helping me. The next year, again, the day after Purim, in a different city, the same young man was saying tefillah, and a young boy from the neighborhood entered the yeshiva, who just became bar mitzvah, and he showed this young man that his straps of the tefillin were slipping and sliding on his arm. I think there's something wrong with the knot. Could you fix it for me? He asked the young man. Again, the young man was only too happy to help. He smiled to himself, remembered all the good times uh, that he was having with the Rosh Hashiva's tefillin this time of year. Third year after the Rosh Hashiva's passing, 
a few days before Purim, this same young man was in a small shul when he realized that there was an older man who seemed to have problems with tefillin. And the old man turned to the young man and said, excuse me, but can you help me? All of a sudden, the young man said, wait a second, something is strange here. This is now three years in a row around this time where people are asking me to fix a tefillin. Why did people never ask him about the tefillin throughout the year? Why only now around Purim? Was it just a coincidence? Now, he forgot about the late, that incident. But as the next year, the fourth year of Purim approached, he began to wonder, oh no, Purim's coming up. I'm curious. I'm going to see if someone's going to ask me the same question again. Lo and behold, right before Purim on the fourth year, someone came to ask him for help about the knot of his tefillin. And then his heart began to tremble and he, as he fastened this knot. After four consecutive years of fixing the knots of people's tefillin around Purim, he was convinced that there was a message coming from Shamaim. And the more he thought about it, the more frightened he became because now he was sure he had to fix something. And that evening he called one of his longtime friends who was still in the former yeshiva and explained these unusual circumstances and he said, please, please, I beg you, take, let's get a minyan, let's go to the kever, the gravesite of the Rosh Yeshiva, let's ask him for mechila in my name. And a few days later, a minyan of men went to the gravesite of this Rosh Yeshiva, they recited numerous chapters of Tehillim, and then a representative of the group asked the Rosh Yeshiva to forgive their friend, for he was indeed remorseful and sorry for what he had done earlier. And since then, no one has ever asked him again, to fix or fasten tefillin. That young man today is an older gentleman. And he says, he was quoted in saying when being interviewed for this story, I was stubborn in those years. And I realize now that I should have went to the Rosh Hashiva and asked for Mechila. But the reason why I didn't do it then was that I knew in my heart that the Rosh Hashiva was angry with me because he thought I was the one that made the knot so tight since I had been the one who did it in previous years. But in reality, it wasn't me that year. I wasn't the one who tied it so tight. It was a new boy who joined us that night. He's the one who tied it with a vengeance, not I. I was the one who just changed it from Ashkenaz to Sefarah, just as I had done in previous years. And the Rosh Hashiva was never upset with me in previous years. Then he added, but perhaps I should have gone to him anyway. So they asked him, what happened to the fellow who actually tightened it? Why didn't he ask for Mechila? And the old man answered, that man unfortunately died very young. And this man who told the story, he's still alive, but has gone through a significant share of life's difficulties. Aval chatanu anachnu vavotenu. Even with pranks, even in good times, sometimes we take things too far. But it was a joke. But it was Purim. But it was just one tefillah. He's a Rosh Hashiva. He's, he's, yeah, how many tefillot has he had? But perfect. So he can miss one. Little did he know that it would have a ripple effect throughout his life. Throughout his life to the point that he had to do something. Botai, it's our job to recognize not only our sins, not only confess to our sins, but recognize the rationales the explanations of why we're doing them, and we need to eliminate them. We need to eliminate the aval. Eliminate the aval. Say chatanu. Eliminate the aval. 
Right now, the aval is a part of it. If we didn't have the aval, if we didn't have the bat in our life, then we would be different people. Let us determine that we shall confront that moment of tzitkut, of righteousness, of truth, when we abandon that word. And all the flimsy excuses, all the meaningless alibis and dangerous self-delusions that have kept us away from a full, meaningful Jewish life. We shall acknowledge our guilt the way we're supposed to, but not using this as a crutch, not using this as a false crutch. Aval anachnu chatanu. Today is the, the, the day before, tonight is Erev Shabbat of Shabbat Shuva, the first Shabbat of the year between Rosh Hashanah, well, last Shabbat was also Shabbat. In this circumstance, the second Shabbat of the year. Let us recognize that, that before HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the word Aval is to no avail. We cannot give excuses. We hope and we pray to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that He will accept our spiritual courage. He will accept our spiritual bravery, bravery in abandoning this word Aval. He will allow us to return to Him. Shuva Hashem, Ad Hashem Lokecha, Ki Chashalta Ba'avonecha. He will allow us to return to Him and to His Torah, to the people of Eretz Yisrael. No ifs, no buts, just performance, doing the right thing. I wish you all a Gemar Chatima Tovah. May HaKadosh Baruch Hu bless each one of you with the ability to recognize our faults, the ability to change our faults, the power to move one step higher, one step closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And Bezat Hashem, it will seal our fate in a, a year of life, a year of peace, a year of Beracha, and only good things. Have a wonderful, wonderful evening, and Shabbat Shalom, everybody. I was looking.